is Our American Stories, and now it's time for a segment by Jesse. And you never know what you're going to get when Jesse does it. And this one's just called More Cowbell. We're high up in the Swiss Alps, and that sound that you're hearing is a herd of cows wearing cowbells. The cowbell was originally intended to make livestock easier to locate if they wandered off. Different bells have different specific sounds to identify important characteristics of the animal, such as age, sex, and specific herd identification. It is difficult to pinpoint when exactly the use of cowbells began, but the earliest examples of truly recognizable cowbells date back to the Iron Age. Just as soon as they were made, cowbells were used for music in sub-Saharan Africa. Although cowbells first appeared in American hillbilly music in the 1920s, they've also been used as an instrument in more recent popular music. The intro and ending to the 1958 track Heartbeat by the American artist Buddy Holly, a USA minor hit which reached number 82 in the Billboard Hot 100, is quite possibly the first use of the cowbell in pop music. Heartbeat, why do you miss my baby kisses me Even Jimi Hendrix used a little cowbell in Stone Free And who could forget the cowbell in Lowrider? God, this is really a good song. All my friends know the Lowrider. The Lowrider is a little higher. But arguably, the most famous cowbell of them all can be found through the entire track of Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper. Released as a single, it was their biggest hit, charting at number 12 in 1976. Now, you probably know where I'm heading with this. To the pinnacle of cowbell fame in modern history. On April 8th of 2000, the comedy sketch known as More Cowbell aired on Saturday Night Live featuring Will Ferrell and Christopher Walken. After a series of staggering defeats, Blue Oyster Cult assembled in the recording studio in late 1976 for a session with fame producer Bruce Dickinson. And luckily for us, the cameras were rolling. Um, Bruce, could you come in here for a second, please? That, that was going to be a great track. Guys, what's the deal? Uh, are, are you sure that was sounding okay? I'll be honest, fellas, it was sounding great, but I could have used a little more cowbell. <laughs> this is one of the best SNL sketches of all time. Will Ferrell's acting was so over the top 
that Christopher Walken, Jimmy Fallon, Horatio Sands, and Chris Kattan were all trying desperately to hide their laughter on stage with very little success. I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. Thank you, Bruce. We asked Blue Oyster Cult's drummer, Albert Bouchard, who is now a music teacher in New York City, how the cowbell made it into Don't Fear the Reaper. Ironically, it was similar to what happened in the skit, okay? It was, we had put a whole bunch of uh, overdubs on the, on the song, and one of them was um, uh, Randy Brecker. Put a, the, he put a flugelhorn part on it, or a trumpet or something, in the, in the middle part, the... That part. So, uh, and we didn't like it. Nobody, nobody in the group liked it, you know. And so, uh, erase that track. So I said, "Hey, I want to do, I want to do a triangle in that part. That's what I want. I really, I hear a triangle in my head." And they're like, and the the uh, one of the producers. There was three. There was Sandy Perlman, Murray Krugman, and David Lucas. David Lucas was a jingle producer, and he produced. Uh, a lot of AT&T, reach out, reach out and touch someone, or uh, it's the Pepsi generation. I don't know if you, you're too young. But anyway, these were big uh, uh, ads back, and uh, he was a madman. So uh, he said, uh, okay, you can put the triangle on it, but try a cowbell. I just want to hear a cowbell. And I said, why? You think that, it, is the tempo not steady enough? And he goes, no, don't. The tempo is fine. It's, I just want to hear that sound. I said, okay. So I play it, and I'm like, nah, it's not working. And he's like, oh, well, put some tape around it. So I put some tape around it. And he's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, that's it. I said, I don't know. Let me try a, beat, a beater. So I used like a timpani mallet. And, and everybody's like, yes, that's it. That's it. So it's funny that, uh, you know, that Will Ferrell, because he wrote the skit, and it's funny that he even noticed it because it was mixed very low. You don't even really notice it in the track, you know. But the last time I checked, we don't have a whole lot of songs that feature the cowbell. I gotta have more cowbell, baby. More Cowbell has its own Wikipedia page, remixes, tributes, and endless reenactments. It also has its very own app. I could have used a little more cowbell. If you go to Amazon right now, you can actually find cowbells with more cowbell printed on them. There's more cowbell shirts. Stickers, magnets, posters, beer cozies, coffee cups, hoodies, infant clothing, license plate frames, cell phone covers, pet clothing, wall murals, keychains, tote bags, cake decorations, mouse pads. I even found a more cowbell frisbee. And that's just on Amazon. Want some women's underwear for your wife with more cowbell printed on it? More cowbell! They've got that too. Do you want an SNL Christopher Walken more cowbell duvet cover? Those are available too. And I don't even know what a duvet is. More cowbell pillows. More cowbell clocks. You get the picture. This humble little instrument has made quite an impact on American culture. Pretty impressive for a piece of metal that was originally intended to help keep track of livestock. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our story of the song series. We love to bring you these stories behind songs you know, but whose stories you don't. Gimme Shelter, Georgia on My Mind, Light My Fire, White Christmas, just a few. And also The Little Drummer Boy and Peace on Earth and How Bing and Bowie came to do that song. And today we want to bring you, though, a story of a song you likely don't know. We don't do a lot of those, but every once in a while the story's so damn good, we've got to tell it. And today's story is brought to us by our own Alex Cortez. It's a song that shouldn't exist. If some people had their way. And if not for one man who had a different opinion from them about how the history should be written. Alex Binius Harris, the co-writer of the song, had a relatively normal life in America. He knew that his grandmother didn't in another country, but no more than that. Growing up, I never knew about her history. I was born in Krakow, Poland. And I think it was a very good decision to leave me unaware of this. I remember my first grade teacher's name, and it was Mrs. Jablonska, which meant apple. <laughs> he didn't know that she shouldn't be alive. I remember saying to my mother, I will never learn how to read. <laughs> But I did. (laughs) And therefore, that he shouldn't be alive. I remember reading James Fenimore Cooper, you know, The Last of the Mohicans. I couldn't imagine what it was like to be a Native American. (laughs) And thus, no song. Life was kind of nice, till the war. But this would change. He knew that I was a survivor, but he didn't really know the whole story. Alex grew up in Washington, D.C., and would visit his grandmother in Southern California. And when he got into the University of Southern California, USC, and was finally physically close to her, she finally not only told him the whole story, she showed him it. Jews tend to be survivors. By chance, at his university, of the over 4,000 universities in the world, there was an archive, the archive, for stories that were like hers. I remember they closed all the bank accounts, you know, Jewish bank accounts were closed, so my parents couldn't withdraw any money. And he was moved enough by her story that he decided to go beyond her story to promote the other stories that were there. He decided to intern there at the USC Shoah Foundation. Here's what he heard. Just prior to the war and at the beginning of the war, there was a heightened feeling of uh, something is going to happen. And people used to congregate in the courtyard 
of the uh, apartment building and talk about war and uh, feeling that uh, if, if something, if, if things were going to happen, things weren't going to be so good for the Jews. But as a child, no, I, I don't think that I felt any anti-Semitism. I really wouldn't have known what that was. She would. Oh, the older people were concerned and talked in hushed tones, you know, and listened to the uh, foreign broadcasts on the uh, radio. Hostilities have been going on since early this morning along the frontiers between Germany and Poland. When war broke out... World War II. Germany has invaded Poland. Bombs started falling. But of course, right away, the schools were closed, and so our lives really changed. I had just received, just prior to that, a puppy. And one of the first things that I had to part with, painfully, was to give up my dog to a shelter because my parents felt that I couldn't take care of it with the war approaching. And I distinctly remember having to take him to a shelter. You know, I was only about uh, eight years old. The German invasion of Poland happened on September 1st, 1939, and immediately some of their closest neighbors, formerly a motley crew of every type of Pole, came to the courtyard looking more uniform. They appeared with armbands sporting swastikas. They turned out to have been fifth columnists, so it was really uh, kind of a incredible feeling to realize that you've been trusting people and, and uh, telling them your feelings and your attitudes and they were sympathizers of the Nazis or of the Germans at the time, you know. I don't think we really fully realized what Nazism was till it hit us later. At that time we just talked about Germany invading Poland. My father, of course, left right away. I mean, all the men, as soon as uh, war broke out, all the men went east, you know, on a long march, sort of running away. So all the women were left in the building. Uh, then my father came back, fortunately, but there was this incredible fear, you know, not knowing what was happening to my father. And I could sense that, I could feel it, I could see it in my mother. That was the beginning of it, you know. I was just kind of totally unsettled life. And by winter, her father was back. They moved us into what used to be the Jewish section of town. Actually, they moved us twice, you know. They, the ghetto kept shrinking. <laughs> uh, so the, at first it was a much larger, and then uh, the, it shrank some more and shrank some more. We were squished together in a tight place, but there were lots of other children. We didn't have school, so there was more time to play. It wasn't so bad. I mean, for a child, for the grown-ups, it must have been terrible. When I think about it, now that I'm a parent, you know, um, it must have been hard. Her parents both worked at a factory owned by a gentleman named Julius Madrich, who wasn't Jewish the Nazis forcing them to leave their little girl to fend for herself most of the day. Just sort of hung around, really. I was all alone, really. And then as things progressed and got worse and worse in the ghetto, it became evident that, at least for my parents, that the best thing 
would be for me to go out with them to work. My parents were able to get to fake my age, make it two years older, to allow me to go out of the ghetto with them. She was only nine years old, pretending to be 11. And I was then started working on a sewing machine. And in 1943, the Jewish ghetto that they were in... Closed completely. That was the last selection. One day, they came in, and the German, well, I don't know whether they were SS or, or soldiers or whoever, took some of the children and absolutely knocked their heads on the walls. They swung them by the legs and killed them that way. It was a horrible experience. We all saw it. We were transported to Plashov, which became a labor camp. At first, it was a labor camp. Then it became a concentration camp. I was afraid. The overwhelming emotion that has uh, probably ruled my life has been fear, fear of authority and fear in general. And after the break, we're going to continue with Selena Benitez's gut-wrenching story. And by the way, we love bringing you the hard ones like we promised. They're not always upbeat. There's a tremendous ending to this one, though. And America plays a centrifugal part in the ending, as it did for so many who suffered at the hands of Nazis throughout Europe. And by the way, we're also going to bring you the story of the sun. And of course, the story of that song. And again, usually our stories of the song are about songs you know and love. But this is a story of a song you don't know, but you should. And that's why we're bringing it to you. Selena Benitez's story, so many people trapped by Nazism. Their story, too, in a way. Her son's story, her grandson's story. Here on Our American Stories. And we continue now with Alex's story on Selena Benitez, a survivor of the Holocaust. Every day, Selena and her parents walked 90 minutes from the Plashoff labor camp to the Madrich factory where they worked and 90 minutes back at night. We were not as fortunate as uh, the Schindler people who were able to stay and live at the factory. Selena is referencing Oscar Schindler, whom Steven Spielberg's award-winning movie Schindler's List is about, and who also had a factory and through his friendship with the Nazis was able to convince them that his workers would be more productive if they avoided the walk and lived at the factory. 
you know that plush of the camp was made originally on the Jewish cemetery. So they crushed the stones. So we walked every day over people's names, you know. So that was kind of humiliating too, especially to people who had, uh, you know, relatives buried at that cemetery. And then once the camp became a concentration camp, uh, we no longer could go out. And so Madrich established his factory in the camp. And in the concentration camp, they separated her father from Selena and her mother. And she saw things too. I witnessed a couple hangings of, of young boys. He happened to have sung a song or something, and they, you know, they hung him for that. But their boss, Julius Madrich, would never do such a thing. Madrich was a wonderful person. He was somehow just got caught. You know, there were a lot of Germans and Austrians who were caught in the situation, uh, none of their doing really, and they did the best they could. They did bring in food for us. Uh, Madridge brought in medications. Very decent people. Then, in January 1945, the Nazis realized that the Soviets were approaching Krakow and they completely dismantled Plashev. All bodies that had previously been buried in mass graves were exhumed and burned on site. By the 20th of the month, the Soviets arrived and found only a barren patch of land. All of the remaining prisoners had been sent to Auschwitz, including Selena. The men were shipped earlier, and the women were then shipped in the cattle cars, and it took some time. We didn't really realize that we were getting going to Auschwitz till we arrived there in the middle of the night, and they emptied out the cars, and we saw where we were, and it was a very frightening experience. Auschwitz was the most infamous of concentration camps and the largest one, where 74% of the prisoners there were Jews and 87% of the Jews there were slaughtered. In total, 1.1 million fellow human beings were slaughtered. Fear, smell, burning flesh, shouting orders, uh, not knowing which way to, music being played, slush on, on you know, on, on the mud on the, on the road, you know, the Germans barking at us, get out, get out, get out, uh, you know, from the cattle cars, finding ourselves on this, and realizing where we were, and, you know, the fear that uh, that was the end, you know. The first place they took us to, they walked us into the uh, sauna, which is supposedly the, the, the lousing room or whatever. But uh, we at that point already had heard what happened in Auschwitz. So when they told us to strip and take our clothes off and they shaved our heads and all that, and they shoved us into the, the shower room, you know, we didn't know what to expect, you know. Uh, 
whether we were going to have the gas or whether we were going to have actual water. It was, a, it was a horrible experience, you know. When the water finally came, it was just like we couldn't believe it. And then, the one single time that she was separated from her mother all of these years in concentration camps, the angel of death, Dr. Joseph Mengele, selected their barrack for what they called a selection. Selected to run through the gas chamber. Her mother was out working, and Selena, then 12 years of age, was to face death alone. We were told to strip and walk through, and on the first run through, uh, Ms. Dr. Mengele pushed me to the left side with some of the older women. And then I don't know what happened. He had a change of heart and told everybody to go through again. And when we went through again, I just, I don't know how I got the nerve, but I looked up at him and I said three words in German, lassen Sie mich. Let me go. And he let me go. He let me go to the right. And I ran out like crazy, you know, clutching my clothes in my hands in the nude. My mother returned and found out that the barrack had been taken for selection, and she was frantic, absolutely frantic. I remember having run out from the selection and my mother returning and running up and down looking for me. I mean, she was absolutely frantic. And the suspense would continue. They lined us up again and told us they were going to tattoo us, tattoo our number on us. And, at the, and I was even asking my mother, is it going to hurt? Is it going to hurt? And then all of a sudden, they shoved us into the cars. Rail cars. And we went off without the tattoos. We couldn't, you know, everything was just, everything happened, uh, and you didn't understand why. Well, this time, there was a good reason why. They were on the rail car because they were on the list. When we got to to Brindlitz, you know, and Schindler came to the uh, to the station to pick us up, and you know, to the railroad station, we couldn't believe that we actually made it. Made it to likely freedom, hopefully. Soon enough, 1,200 Jews were on Schindler's list. And many often think that all of them were his factory workers. But 200 of them weren't, including Selena and her mom. Schindler came to Madrich and made him a proposition and said, you know, I'm taking my people to Czechoslovakia. Why don't you re-establish a factory in Czechoslovakia, and Madrid said he didn't want to. He had had enough of the whole thing. But Schindler said to him, well then, I'm making a list of people that I'm taking with me, and I am, because you're, we're friends, I want you to give me some names from your people. And that's how we got on the list. It took Schindler a while to bribe enough people to get them out of Auschwitz and at great personal risk to himself, having already been arrested 
three times. But get them, he did. And after the break, the final portion of this remarkable story of a song. And up next, the song part. This is Our American Stories. stories and now we return to this remarkable story of a song and it's a story about so much more as you can tell but now the song part back to alex now we know why selena is alive why her grandson alex benius harris is alive and why there is a song that can have a story about it in May of 2014, the USC Shoah Foundation hosted the Ambassadors for Humanity Gala, and my grandmother, on behalf of the Jewish survivors community, was asked to speak. And the award recipient for that year of the Ambassador for Humanity was uh, the President of the United States, Barack Obama. I would have never believed that uh, my experiences would ever be written up in a fabulous book, or that this incredible movie would be made, Schindler's List or that I would ever be talking to a huge audience like that in the presence of the President of the United States. When Steven Spielberg was considering Liam Neeson for the lead role of Oscar Schindler, there was a concern that the star was too attractive to play the part in such a serious movie. So one of the studio's executives made a call, a call to his mother of all people to get her advice and she said Mr. Schindler was very handsome so he gets the job and this mother would know it was Selena how extraordinarily improbable or some might say probable through providence And for Alex's part, when he interned at the USC Shoah Foundation, there was another intern there who was also passionate about music. I'm a senior studying neuroscience and piano performance at the University of Southern California. I started playing piano at a very young age, at four and a half. So it's always been with me. Music and neuroscience, there's definitely a lot of overlap. The way that music makes people feel interests me very much. I really would love to study more about why music can bring people to tears, for example. You're listening to Ambrose Sohn, and Ambrose and Alex noticed that there was a surprising amount of music in the USC Shoah Foundation's archive, including melodies that survivors had written while they were at Auschwitz. 
and they decided that they could compose a song out of it on the piano. One of the first melodies that we encountered um, was from an Italian Jewish survivor. Her name was Lucia Mato, and she uh, used a traditional Yiddish melody, but set her own text to it. Qui in questa terra triste maledetta soffrono molti figli di Israele. Now, from Lucia's melody, we wanted to use something in the context of pre-Holocaust Europe. And for people like Lucia, life was probably good. And we thought, in the context of a dance, with people enjoying themselves and laughing, that the waltz was a great way of conveying this emotion. So I uh, started by writing the first movement, uh, which um, is titled Exodus. And uh, it re represents how um, just normal people living their daily lives were basically ripped away from everything they knew and sent to Auschwitz in this very forceful manner. To convey in a musical way what people would have felt as they walked off the train once it arrived at Auschwitz, that sinking, crushing feeling of seeing the most horrendous sight in front of you, having your loved ones just torn away, we decided to directly represent that on the keys by walking down from high to low. second movement I entitled Ashes to Earth. It represents the visual image of inmates arriving at the camp and seeing ashes as they come in billowing out of the chimneys of the crematoria. It had to represent something that was cyclical. This wasn't just a one-time thing, this was constant. The last movement was more of a collaborative epping because it grew organically and we entitled it Inner Refractions. The reason that we chose Inner Refractions was that survivors left the camp a little bit hollowed out and they had to re-conceptualize the world and what it meant to them. And so these refractions are meant to be sort of hollow ghosts and the ghosts exist within all survivors and within the camp as well. And this song of theirs was not just their song, it was the song to be performed by them on January 27th, 2015 at the 70th anniversary event, remembering the liberation of Auschwitz. In a few years' time, our generation won't have any direct access to survivors who actually lived through that experience. The moment we found out uh, we were going to be traveling to Poland to perform this piece, um, we were understandably pretty excited. And it was an incredible feeling knowing that the work paid off and that we'd have this chance to play for survivors. 100 survivors 
to be exact. Including Grandma taking in Alex's and Ambrose's music about them. We were looking over the plans of how the stage was going to be set up and everything like that. And we quickly realized that uh, the stage was not going to be able to support the weight of two full grand pianos. And told to uh, basically reduce our entire two piano suite um, into a one piano work for four hands. We were going to have to do a lot of rewriting and condensing in order to, to delineate the parts so that we weren't constantly uh, jutting into each other. And we were changing the piece up until the hours before the performance. Through the whole condensing process, the, the piece matured in a way that um, it really couldn't have if we hadn't been told that we had a week to kind of rewrite the entire thing for one piano. That's the moment when it hits you like, this is real life, this is happening. When they tell you, you're on in five seconds. Music is really the one true universal language in that across all boundaries, across all cultures and language, we will all be able to understand these melodies and interpret it in the way that we'd like. Music has that ability to keep life going. And I think it's our duty as young people to educate other young people about the ills of genocide. We, the survivors, who are now in our 80s and 90s, have definitely passed the torch to the new generation. And so it's important to raise awareness about uh, what happened and to keep fresh in our memories that this type of thing could happen again. The fact that we were able to contribute to that message in such a personal way through music is really incredible. And I was glad that he had that experience. In terms of listening to him play, that was fantastic. I mean, every grandmother would love to have a grandson play. She said, I'm proud grandma today. But I knew for her that it was so emotional coming back to this awful place. And I could feel it, even though I know that a lot of these emotions she had wrapped up for a long time after the war. She was finally able to let all the ghosts go away. Out of the ashes of Auschwitz, there is a new generation. What a story. And thanks to our friend Susan Crown for putting us onto the USC Shoah Foundation. You can watch these video testimonies on their website, sfi.usc.edu. That's sfi.usc.edu. And Selena Biniaz's story. Her grandson Alex's story, the transcendent music that he wrote in honor of all who suffered at the hands of the Nazis during the Holocaust. This is Lee Habib. 
their stories here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. If you're looking for political talk, try somewhere else. Hot Talk, another channel. But if you're looking for stories, that's what we do here on Our American Stories. And recently, our field correspondent, Alex Cortez, brought us a very strange report about a very strange law in the state of Wisconsin. And we like to report on what's going on in the states. You won't hear a lot of D.C. and New York and L.A. talk here. And that, there's a reason for that. And by the way, those cities are filled with people who are from everywhere else, too. So it was about time we started talking about what's going on in a large swath of this country called flyover country. Well, it was so strange we felt compelled to do a second installment. And here's Alex. Last week, we heard about some strange news reports like this one. Curiosity leads to large crowds in Mobile's Crichton community, many of you bringing binoculars, camcorders, even camera phones to take pictures. To me, it looked like a leprechaun to me. I got to do look up in the tree. Who else in the leprechaun say yeah? yeah! Eyewitnesses say the leprechaun only comes out at night. If you shine a light in its direction, it suddenly disappears. And then, the strangest one of them all. Low prices are part of the Meyer business model, but are they too low? The company says it's never encountered this type of situation in any other state where it operates. Low prices that are too low? Our brains and our wallets were so unsettled that we had to find out what on earth was going on here and whether we were still even on the planet Earth. And so we asked an expert, the president of a think tank called the McIver Institute. And more importantly, Brett Healy is a Wisconsin resident and expert shopper. Wisconsin's minimum markup law is a relic from the distant past. It was originally passed back in 1939, and essentially the law makes it illegal for retailers and wholesalers to sell merchandise at a discount. But it's not just Meyer and their customers who are affected. Today, we hear about Walmart. We did an analysis of Walmart flyers from Milwaukee, Chicago, and Minneapolis during the back-to-school days when so many retailers are offering low prices uh, in an attempt to convince you to come to their store to buy your back-to-school supplies. And what we found was that the minimum markup law in Wisconsin is having a real impact on Wisconsinites, and it's, it's a costly one. Elmer glue sticks in Chicago went for 50 cents a pop 
during the back-to-school sales in Milwaukee because of the minimum markup law, that glue, same glue stick had to be sold for $1.25. So that's a 150% increase uh, thanks to the minimum markup law. We saw the same sort of prices for other items like markers and notebooks. In each of these situations, you're seeing a 50 to 70% markup on the cost of back-to-school supplies. Oh, back to school, back to school, to prove to Dad that I'm not a fool. I got my lunch packed up, my boots tied tight. I hope I don't get in a fight. He was pretty somber there, but Adam Sandler got really riled up when we told him about his prescription drugs. Walmart has a very popular uh, generic prescription drug program where they sell for four dollars 350 different drugs uh in wisconsin however they're not able to sell all of those drugs at that four dollar price because of the minimum markup law certain number of of the drugs here in wisconsin are required to be sold at eight dollars once again things that could have been brought to my attention yesterday which is a hundred percent increase over what people in other states are getting their drugs for you blew it in this area alone, Wisconsinites are being charged up to $35 million more a year for prescription drugs. Will you give me a break one time? This isn't some esoteric debate in ivory towers. This is a, a, a public policy issue that has an impact on real Wisconsinites, and it's costing them big money out of their checkbooks. Ah! You're sick! You're sick! Why would you do that? Adam Sandler, he speaks and he screams... Do you understand me? On behalf of the rest of us, Walmart is now closing four locations in the state of Wisconsin. The state's minimum markup law may have had something to do with it. To what degree, we'll never know. And yet those most affected by the law might not even be the big retailers like Walmart or Meyer, or even Wisconsin consumers. It might be the very small businesses who claim they need the law to protect their higher profit margins. With the advance of the Internet and uh, people becoming more and more comfortable purchasing their products through the Internet, people are going to turn to the Internet more and more to get the lowest prices. In the age of the Internet, fewer folks will go to these mom-and-pop shops with prices that they know are higher. And we won't because of the minimum markup law. Families like Brett's know that they can often get better prices for the very same goods online. My family is a perfect example of that. My wife loves Walmart.com. We get a box every two or three days at the house through the mail from Walmart.com of the everyday household products that we use, the best price possible. The mom and pop shops, the Myers, the Walmarts all should be given a chance to compete freely, to fight to be the best they can be in the marketplace. And as consumers, for us to spend our own money freely. If more Wisconsinites knew about the minimum markup law and knew that there was bureaucrats being paid with their tax dollars whose sole job is to prevent them from getting the best price possible on their products, I think they'd be outraged. And so I think the more we talk about this issue, uh, the more and more people are going to wake up and demand that this antiquated 1939 law be changed. And hopefully we can unleash the true power of competition here in Wisconsin and do away with the minimum markup law. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. Great job on that, Alex, and you can't make it up. And and by the way, Walmart, 
I just looked it up because it's an amazing number. They save the average American family $2,500 a year with their discounts. You know, and in some places, folks, that's real money. Like in my household and everyone here at this show. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We bring you the kind of stories that affect your pocketbook, the kind of stories that affect your lives. And you can see or hear all of it on OurAmericanNetwork.org. More after this. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, in 1942, the Supreme Court handed down its decision in a case called Wickard v. Filburn. This landmark case dramatically expanded what the federal government could regulate as commerce. As always, our This Day in History segments are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all of the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life, from philosophy to history, I mean history, history, and all the way across the board to the arts and sports. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you through their terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And to learn more about Wickard, we turn to Randy Barnett, director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution and a professor of legal theory at Georgetown Law. First, we asked Randy to tell us a bit about how things worked in America before this Wickard case was decided. Well, from the founding through the New Deal, it was commonly thought that the federal government only had very limited and enumerated powers, and the great bulk of the regulatory powers of government resided in states. So that began to change as progressives lobbied for um, increasing federal regulation of the economy and other matters, including such matters as, for example, alcohol prohibition. And eventually, this culminated in a series of court cases in which the Supreme Court initially declined to recognize or authorize federal power, but eventually that situation changed, and Wickard versus Filburn is an important part of that change. Then we asked him to tell us a bit about Mr. Filburn himself and how he got involved in this big New Deal Supreme Court case. He was a dairy farmer, and he basically raised chickens um, and cows in order to sell milk and eggs to uh, the local population. (laughs) What happened is the Congress passed what was called the Agricultural Adjustment Act, and it was aimed at supposedly, quote, stabilizing farm prices, uh, which basically means keeping farm prices higher than what the market for farm products was at the time. And they did that by limiting supply of, in this case, wheat, the wheat that uh, Filburn grew on his farm. They could raise the price of wheat by limiting the supply. That would be the way it works. And they did that, and they gave each farmer a quota. Filburn had a quota, and he grew more than his quota. He used the, the wheat that he grew to feed his livestock and then sell the proceeds of Uh, his livestock to the general public. He also used it 
for his seed for future years, and he used a very small portion of it to feed himself and his family on his property. And he deliberately grew more than his allotted amount in order to provide a test case and challenge the Agricultural Adjustment Act as exceeding Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. Um, and so that's, that's what he did, and eventually the case uh, ended up going into the Supreme Court. Now, if you could smell something funny about the federal government regulating how much a farmer could grow on his own property to take care of his own needs, well, you're not alone. Here's Randy on the interests behind those regulations. The Agricultural Adjustment Act was probably uh, pretty popular amongst farmers because it was meant to raise the prices that they could charge by restricting the supply. And in fact, whether there would be a quota or not be a quota would be determined by a majority vote of the relevant farmers. This was a typical New Deal policy. They did similar things for many industries besides agriculture. And it was a way, in fact, for the Roosevelt administration to benefit business, uh, those businesses that currently exist, at least a majority of those businesses at the expense of the minority, uh, by, in a sense, creating a government cartel in one business after another business. That was the general economic policy of the New Deal. And by the way, what was good for farmers was not good for the American public. I mean, artificially raising prices for poor people and working-class poors, that's really difficult. And by the way, as you can tell, many of these arguments, we don't do politics here. This is a this day in history. But many of these discussions are still happening today. Now, of course, not everyone agreed with this government cartel, especially when the Constitution gave the federal government power to regulate commerce among the several states. There were dissenters in, to all these cartels, and Filburn was one of them, and that's why he brought the lawsuit. And so the point of the lawsuit was to say that it doesn't matter if a majority of farmers thinks they benefit by restricting supply so they can charge more. I don't think so, and I'm, I have a right to uh, use my property as I see fit and grow the wheat that I wish to grow to use uh, in order to feed my own livestock. I'm not selling the wheat uh, on the interstate market. I'm just using it in my own livestock to run my business. And so I should be entitled to do that. So how did the court decide the case and how did that shape our nation's laws? It was a very difficult case for the Supreme Court. By the time this case was being heard in the 1940s, the court had already reversed some of its earlier rulings that limited federal power and had greatly expanded federal power. It allowed the federal government to regulate not only interstate commerce, which is what the Constitution gives to Congress, it also allowed them to reach inside a state and regulate intrastate activity that was not commerce because that activity had a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And that basically opened the door to regulating almost anything that was local, uh, provided it could be shown that it, or it could be alleged that it had a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And that greatly expanded the power of government. In this case, now it's the 1940s, and this, this so-called New Deal revolution had already taken place, and the court was almost entirely a product of Roosevelt's uh, Supreme Court appointments. All but one justice had been chosen by him. You would think this would be an easy case, but it turned out to be a difficult case. Why? Because Roscoe Philburn argued that he was not engaged in interstate commerce, and his paltry little farm could certainly have no substantial effect on interstate commerce, what he did was not going to affect interstate commerce at all. And so this really was a local matter uh, outside the purview of Congress. And, and the Supreme Court, even in the New Deal cases, it said it is important to distinguish between what's national and what's local. The New Deal Supreme Court said that. 
And Trilburn could reasonably argue what I'm doing is as local as local can get. And as a result, it being such a difficult case, the, the court actually couldn't decide the case the first time it heard it. It heard argument in the case, and it deliberated, and it couldn't reach a decision. And finally, it decided to reschedule the case for the following year and hear argument again. What was bothering even these New Deal justices was it looked like if they were going to allow the federal government to reach even a farmer like Roscoe Filburn, then really all limits on federal power were off. And uh, that was a tough, that was something that was tough even for New Deal justices to swallow. So it took them a year to finally decide the case. The Supreme Court ended up solving uh, or addressing the problem by saying that it didn't matter if Roscoe Filburn's wheat was a tiny amount that had no substantial effect on interstate commerce. What mattered is that all similar farmers like Roscoe Filburn, when you aggregate them all together as a group, have a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And that introduced the so-called aggregation principle into constitutional law, which means that not only may Congress regulate local activity that has a substantial effect on commerce, but it may regulate even trivial instances of local activity as long as it can be categorized as part of a larger group that would have a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And that gave Congress what looked like uh, pretty much unlimited power to regulate economic matters anywhere in the country. And that is how the case was read or interpreted. It's not actually what the case says, but it is what the case, how the case was read and interpreted and extrapolated for 20 or 30 years after it was decided, and until 1995, in the case of the United States versus Lopez, which involved what's called the Gun-Free School Zone Act, which made it a crime to possess a gun within a, a federal crime to possess a gun within a thousand feet of a, of a school. With the passage of that act in 1995, that became the first law in, I think it was 50 years, that invalidated the law uh, uh, because it exceeded Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. So for all of those years, the court had never seen a law that they thought had gone too far. And then finally, in Lopez, they did uh, find a law that went too far. Um, but they didn't reverse Wickard versus Filburn. They basically said, this is something that goes beyond Wickard. And they said that because in Wickard, they said that involved economic activity. What, what Roscoe Filburn was doing was economic activity. But possessing a gun within a thousand feet of a school is not economic activity. And what the, a five to four majority of the Supreme Court said is that, you know, that's on, there's no precedent for extending Congress's power even to local activity that's not economic. And therefore, they drew the line between local activity that was economic that had a substantial effect on commerce, which Congress could reach under Wickard, and local activity that was not economic, which they said Congress could not reach. And some of the same old arguments today. It sounds familiar, right? Listening to the to the news of the day, the federal power versus the state and local power still playing itself out. It played itself out in the founding of this country. And on this day in history, Wickard v. Filborn was decided in 1942. As always, our This Day in History brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Go to This Day in History. There's a couple of hundred of them. All brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale.
is Our American Stories, where we love to tell great stories about music, sports, arts, love, death, and business, and occasionally about our government and its impact on our lives. And for the longest time, we had been talking about in our studio about the role of this show and mostly its storytelling. But periodically, we're going to poke around into uh, stories about our own government because the fourth estate, and that is journalism, is supposed to protect us from an over-encroaching government. And that was always the rule and role of the First Amendment. And all too often now, you're not hearing enough stories about, about that and about the impact of government, and particularly government corruption, on our lives. And so when and where we find those stories, we're going to drill down deep on them, because it's a core part of our show, talking about things like separation of powers, driving power to the local level whenever possible, to keep government accountable to the people. It's a simple idea, we the people, and it's a fundamental part of our American stories, is that we honor the story, and the impact individuals can have and want to keep government at bay whenever we can. And today, our field correspondent, Alex Cortez, brings us this story. October 3rd, 2013. Directed by a court order, the police raid four Wisconsin homes. Please search for it! in the middle of the night. I rushed downstairs thinking the worst. With their children there. Armed officer goes into the bedrooms of the kids and wakes them up. Who were sound asleep. It was about 5.30, it was dark outside. I hear a pounding on the door. This 16-year-old Noah Johnson was home alone. Mine's racing a mile a minute. His parents left early that morning for work and weren't there when their home was raided. I'm looking around outside. There are flashlights everywhere on the sidewalk around the house. The police wouldn't let Noah call his parents. They didn't let me call anyone. He couldn't let them know what happened, that he was safe. Deborah Jordahl's home was also raided, and this is what they told her. We would be subject to jail time and a fine if we told anybody about the search on our home. Did they say why? No. For that kind of show of force, with battering rams and taking everything. Children's computers were seized with homework on them. We're told to lie about it. So, you know, the old, the old thing, the dog ate my homework. How does it sound, you know, I lost my computer. Where'd you lose it? I don't know. You'd think these families were dangerous. Does it mean her husband's a pedophile? Uh, Does it mean they're big-time drug dealers? But they weren't. You're supposed to have extraordinary circumstances to do a raid in the dark. And by the way, to do a home raid at all that's aggressive with, you know, flak-vested people in lights is supposed to require some risk of flight, danger, destruction of evidence, none of which is present at all. There's none of that. The crime alleged against him? A violation of campaign finance laws. Campaign finance laws. How boring. But the government's response? All too exhilarating for these families. 
Is this an appropriate tactic for any kind of campaign finance question? Where physical danger to the public isn't a question. See, madness, as you know, is like gravity. All it takes is a little push. <laughs> and these folks, who are primarily engaged in raising money and creating television commercials, aren't exactly the most intimidating characters on the block. They could have knocked, I would have let them in. Unlike these guys. I spent 14 years in an A-finite setting surrounded by people who were less than human. My mission in that time was to become more than human. Milwaukee County District Attorney John Chisholm specifically alleged that these individuals were involved in illegal coordination between Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker's campaign and nonprofit organizations who advocate for public policy positions. Well before the raids, Chisholm had the most private information from these individuals taken from them without giving them notice prior to seizing them violating the Stored Communications Act, a federal law. They already had our emails, we subsequently learned. They already had our bank records. They knew what we were doing. We were proud of what we were doing. They didn't ask us. These raids were not really based on any belief that they would find incriminating information. The person speaking, Eric O'Keefe, said that it was a shutdown play to scare them into submission. Thankfully for Eric, his was one of the few homes that were not raided. One was mine. They didn't raid it because uh, I live in a rural area and the Democratic District Attorney didn't trust the Republican sheriff to conduct the raid and keep quiet about it. They were all told that they had to keep quiet about it because it's what's called a John Doe investigation, a special kind of secret investigation where all parties, the prosecutors, the police, and the defendants all have to keep mum. It's supposedly meant to protect innocent people's good name if the charges against them are dropped. But it also can protect overly zealous prosecutors, like this one, John Chisholm, the guy who requested the dark of the night raids and the illegal seizure of records from public scrutiny. Public scrutiny that brings accountability. And the public needed to know about this, Eric O'Keefe believed. And so he told them about it in violation of the secrecy order. An unconstitutional secrecy order, and I'm, I'm defying the secrecy order. Right now? Yes. Putting himself in greater danger of being sent to prison. But to O'Keefe, the greatest danger is having our rights taken away from us. In silence. What I want to have now in Wisconsin is debate about who is sovereign in Wisconsin. Do we have, are we ruled by the government or do we the people oversee the government? I think it's the job of the people to hold the government accountable. They have inverted the American idea of popular sovereignty. Meanwhile, government bureaucrats and this prosecutor in particular have ignored their primary job, the foundational purpose of government, to keep its citizens safe. Murders are way up, carjackings are up, the uh, administration in Milwaukee has a no-chase policy for car thefts, so the drug trade is now run from stolen cars, and there are, there, uh, are multiple car thefts every day, and they just rotate them, and they have, uh, they have teenagers do the stealing, and they put them in, and they do their transactions from them until they have a 
chase that gets enough of an idea, then they dump the car. And uh, that is the kind of thing that a district attorney responsible that citizens might be working on instead of raiding the homes of people who don't even live in this county. In July of 2015, the Wisconsin Supreme Court declared the John Doe investigation unconstitutional and ordered it to be shut down for good. The court also ordered the prosecutors to return the over 6 million records they seized from the targeted individuals. And yet somehow, some way, the Guardian newspaper received sealed court records that included many of these communications and published them over a year later on September 14th, 2016. Now who would leak such a thing? The sad thing is that it doesn't take much thought to take a guess. This sad saga continues. Stay tuned. And great job on that, Alex. And what a story. I love that line from Eric O'Keefe. Are we ruled by the government or do we run our government? And again, these are the kind of stories we'll dig into. You'll get the other part of this story very soon. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, the John Doe investigation in Wisconsin. This is Our American Stories, and here we have, coming up, one of our regular features, Faith and her regular visits to the villages in Florida, the largest retirement community in the country. And this time she spoke with Dwayne Woods, an Air Force veteran who recently went on an honor flight. The honor flight program raises money to take veterans to D.C. to experience all the memorials and monuments there. At the end of every honor flight, people await the veterans' arrival home, as if they're coming home from war. Let's listen to Faith's conversation with Dwayne. Dwayne invited me in and greeted me with a hug and a kiss on the cheek. He served me some ice water and he sat down in his rocking chair and began telling me all about his experiences on the honor flight. My guardian picked me up at the house, 1.30, one the American Legion. Uh, there was... All kinds of people out there to greet us when we were leaving. Family, family and friends. Went inside the American Legion and there's a big table sitting there. And there was a um, 40 handmade quilts. And you pick out the quilt you want and uh, bagged it up and had it waiting for you when you got back there. I picked up one with the uh, Air Force insignia on And then from the American Legion, they headed off to Orlando International Airport. When they arrived, a surprise awaited them. And by the way, there was just an enormous amount of people in in Orlando in the airport, too, greeting us. Thank you for your service. If I heard that once, I heard that at least a thousand times on that day. How did you feel? Oh, you're like you want to drip a tear. So? What exactly did Dwayne do in the military? 
He served in the Korean War, referred to often as the Forgotten War. The war lasted from June 1950 to 1953. Nearly 40,000 American soldiers died in the war. Duane joined a few months after it all started. I went in 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 November of 1950, and I went into... I was in the Michigan National Guard. I joined it uh, in 1948, and I started college in 47. And uh, uh, in 48, in early 48, Congress put back the, the draft. And I was, in, I was in college, and several of my friends did the same thing. We joined the Michigan National Guard because that hopefully would keep us out of going on active duty so he could stay in school. He was drafted, like many of his peers. After attending pilot training, he fell below the required minimum to become a pilot. So I would have had a choice at that time. I could have gone right back to school, gone right back to civilian life, or I could uh, go on to navigation school. Well, we, most of us went on to navigation school. I went, that was down in Houston, Texas. And I was in there, uh, and I graduated out of there in November, which was the same time I'd have finished out of pilot school if I'd have stayed. But I graduated, got my wings, got my commission, and uh, I uh, went into uh, combat crew training school in Virginia at uh, Langley Air Force Base. I was there 10 weeks. And we come out of there, that started in, that started in the, uh, late November, and we finished up in February, and, uh, and right on into Korea. And once he got to Korea, the flight missions began. He and his crew flew dangerous night missions, flying without any lights on or inside their plane. As soon as they took off, it went dark. Their goal was to empty all their ammunition, Mr. Woods made it through his tour without any major injury. But that doesn't mean he didn't have some close calls. We were temporarily flying out of Pusan, which is down uh, at the, uh, in the lower part of, right down near the coast, the lower, lower end of the peninsula. And, uh, and, and close, closer to the Sea of Japan than the, sea of, uh, than, than the Yellow Sea. Uh, sea of Japan is in between Korea and Japan, uh, and we were uh, we were temporarily flying while they're doing a little repair work on our runways up at Kunsan, and uh, we were performing our heavy maintenance on our planes, engine maintenance, at a, at a place on the west coast of Japan called Miho, and we were taking our crew was was shuttling this plane over because we had a sick engine, and. Uh, so what we did, we took off that day and with both, both engines running, the good one and the one not so good, and with the whole idea, you climb up to altitude, then you shut the bad one down and you fly on into Japan on one engine. And then we'd crank up the bad engine for the landing. That was, that's the, that was the plan for everything. Okay. We, we took off, clear day, just a few billowy clouds, it was a beautiful day. Climbing straight up over the airport, 5,000 feet. 
and the court engine backfired. Declared May Day. You can see the field underneath it, right over the field. And declared May Day, and they give us the, they cleared the whole field. And, and we came, lined up on final approach. And he forgot to drop the landing gear. So I reached over and hit the switch myself. We were down there 30, 40 feet off the ground. After crashing into some power lines, it seemed that he and his team had dodged a bullet. The, the pilot ended up with a, with a uh, broken arm, and I ended up with a, a black eye and a bruised arm, like nothing. And uh, so, I guess it was pretty fortunate that considering what we went through that all five of us lived. So what was going on in your head? I don't want to die this way. <laughs> I guess that's probably the big thing. But you really, you, you really have no control at that stage. You really don't. Obviously not all who have served make it home. But for those who have, the honor flight does their best to show their appreciation to show our appreciation. Duane was being honored for his bravery on those night flights, for fighting and nearly dying in America's forgotten war. Now, let's hear what the rest of the trip was like for Duane. They flew from Orlando to D.C., where yet another welcome committee was awaiting for him. We got up into the terminal, and there was... Probably twelve or fifteen hundred people out there to greet us. Now this is this is seven thirty eight o'clock in the morning. It's early, but uh, including there was about twenty from uh, from Fort Meade, which was a uh, it's a it's a military installation and used for quite a bit for national security. And there was about twenty Navy people there, men and women, dressed all in their dress whites, just for us, just to greet us. And that was went on all the way down through the terminal till we got out to the buses. And there again, we were back on Stars and Stripes again. We had a police escort on a motorcycle. They told us the only ones that get a police escort is the honor flight and the president. <laughs> the veterans visited Arlington Cemetery, toured the lawn, and visited all the memorials and monuments that DC had to offer. Funny enough, one of the sites that really stuck in his mind wasn't a monument at all. There was an enormous amount of, of probably 10 to 15 year olds. School's out. And you know how these schools, uh, when school's out, they, that's a common spot. They'll take, a, they'll take them into Washington for a week. And, uh, and young kids as well as older ones. And they were just as polite I'm telling you, and thank you for your service. I heard that constantly. I was so impressed with the youth that we've got in this country. You know, you read the bad stuff. You don't read the good stuff, because they don't publish the good stuff. You know, because I guess they don't sell newspapers. You know how that goes. So they, all they do is publish the bad, and you, you think, my God, is the whole country this way? It's not. It's not. 99.9% of them are good people. And that's what we saw. What a positive report on the youth of America. After seeing everything that DC had to offer, the honor flight returned to Orlando. 
And despite it being nearly one o'clock in the morning, there were still people waiting for their arrival. We get off the plane, and at the top of the ramp, of course, there's tons of people out there. I mean, to tell you, there's still another 500 people probably out there to greet us. But there was a bagpiper, one bagpiper. And he, he piped his tune as we come up the, the ramp. And then he, he led us all the way to the buses by piping all the way. <laughs> was it emotional? Oh, yeah, all the way, very much, very emotional because of the fact that they're, they're showing appreciation. Constantly, that's what they're doing with, with their greetings and, and their presence. This meant the world to Dwayne and all the veterans that were able to participate. We can never thank our veterans enough for all that they've done for our country and all that the current veterans do. Thank you, Dwayne for your service. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories reporting to you from the Villages, Florida. And thank you, Dwayne. Thank you, Faith, as always. And that little bit of appreciation, you can hear it in Dwayne's voice. Old, moved, and beautiful. Dwayne's story, Dwayne Woods, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 